Hi folks and thanks for listening to this Tortoise Check podcast. A little bit of housekeeping before we kick off. I know people get tired of me asking, but I have to. The Tortoise Check has no ads, we have no sponsors, and we want to keep going, particularly in 2024, which is going to be the year of elections. We want to cover what's happening domestically, what's happening in the European Parliament, and indeed elections across the globe. And the only way we can do that is if some of you, some of the thousands are listening, we need a handful of you to chip in and pay it forward to keep the podcast free for everyone. It is not a one-way street. You get a ton of extras, including access to our entire back catalogue of over 1,500 podcasts now in one consolidated feed, and they're entirely plea-free. So you don't have to listen to me beg, but beg I must, and beg I will continue to do until we try and make this little independent media platform that we have somewhat, somewhat viable. It is a struggle, I won't lie. We are we are finding it very difficult, and I understand people are finding it very difficult out there. The cost of living crisis has not gone away for most of the population, and I, and I get it, but if you are in a fortunate enough position or you'd go without a cup of coffee once a month just to keep us going, then throw us the price of that cup of coffee. It's patreon.com forward slash tortoise The link is at the top of the podcast you're about to listen to now. Thanks for all the feedback, people who listen, who share, who like, who tell people where to find us, throwing a recommendation on the old WhatsApp. It's all brilliant, but we really need some of you to come on board. So while you're listening to the pod, click the link and give us the 90 seconds it'll take you to help keep these mics on and the show on the road. Thank you. Welcome to Reboot Republic, the podcast that goes behind the headlines and looks at the big issues in this republic of inequality. We are the podcast of solutions and the podcast of hope. And I am delighted to be joined today um, on the podcast by Professor Catherine uh, DeVries, who is the Dean of International Affairs and Professor of Political Science at Bocconi University. Um, and she's held professorships at the University of Oxford, Amsterdam, and at the UCLA. Uh, Catherine, I'm delighted to have you on the podcast today. Well, thank you so much for inviting me. I'm happy to be here. Listen, you wrote an article in the Irish Times there, or sorry, the Irish Times, should I say the Financial Times, <laughs> the Financial Times last week, um, on the whole issue of the rise of the far right um in Europe, in particularly the context of the um, recent uh, elections in the Netherlands. And you are highlighting something which is very, um, I suppose, interesting for an Irish audience who are seeing um, the rise of a, a far right as well. At the moment, it's quite small. Um, it's very much, uh, it's, it's difficult to describe it in some ways, but it's focused in some trying to organize in some communities, but it doesn't have a political expression at the moment. Um, but we've seen the riots in Dublin recently. We're seeing, you know, a rise in anti-immigrant sentiment um, and very much the issue of housing. They have been using the issue of housing, kind of what I refer to as weaponizing it um, in terms of the huge housing crisis we have here in Ireland, blaming immigrants for it, uh, increased attention on asylum seekers. And we're seeing the emergence of uh, arguments and debates around, you know, Ireland is full, this idea Ireland is full, we can't take any more asylum seekers. Um, and immigrants been the cause of these issues. We're seeing not just protests by the far right, but protests in communities as well um, against things like reception centres for refugees, people saying they should be used instead for other forms of things like, you know, nursing homes. But this whole issue of resource scarcity being weaponized by um, 
those in the far right, but others who are who are trying to whip up this anti-immigrant sentiment. Um, the elections we've seen um, in the Netherlands uh, given a huge increase in the vote for the, the far right. But you also point out there was a rise in a new party emerged as well. Um, what is your analysis of where we're at in terms of, I suppose, the far right in Europe at the moment? And, and um, yeah, just in terms of that to start with. Yeah, so if the audience could have seen my face as you were talking, there was a lot of nodding going on. And that's, I guess, because I'm a, I'm a Dutch person living in Italy. So I think those are the two countries that I know best also economically. Yeah. But it's been very much the same development. So it actually started, just to give a bit of context or a link it to the, to, to the Irish situation, it often started outside of parliament with a mm. lot of, for example, a, an organization in Italy called Casa Pound, which is a quite radical protest group that was really advocating social rights. Uh, and then being kind of anti-immigrant and, and, and blaming or scapegoating it on, on immigration. And then sometimes this gets political expression, sometimes it does not. And that also has to do with electoral rules, with other things that are important in systems. But actually what you're seeing in Europe as a whole is overall, uh, actually the Irish case is a bit of exception. So that I guess because of uh, divisions on the island and also uh, Northern Ireland and unification of Ireland, etc. There's a lot of other other issues mm. playing within the Irish context that might, you know, divert attention away from uh, uh, particular issues. And also, Ireland has seen, you know, its own uh, share of economic changes, right, in the last yeah. uh, in the last period. So, what you see across the European continent is a rise in far right parties. It's not a linear rise. It kind of goes up and then maybe sometimes down and then you know, the FT would write and say, "Oh, you know, it's over." And then but actually what you see is overall since the last, you know, 30 years there's been a rise in far right sentiment in parliamentary expression but also in social movement or in kind of groups uh, on uh, on the street. And then the question very much is, is, is this all due to anti-immigration sentiment, which is, to be fair, often the headline you get from the newspaper, yeah. or is there a deeper root cause or at least also another type of cause? And I've been very interested to think about people who don't have cultural problems. There is a group in the population that has problems with others, actually under every circumstance, but that group research suggests is actually not that big. It's oftentimes people who get swayed to go to more extreme options than they otherwise would. And that a lot of my research is actually about that, why people uh, would be swayed in that. And in the Dutch context, what you actually saw is two winners of the election. First, a far-right governor, uh, Wilders, I think yeah. he's quite known in different cases. Yeah, yeah. He advocates anti-immigration sentiment next it, but also the rise of another party, which is New Social Contract, which basically said that the state's services that should be delivered are, you know, the social contract is broken. And a lot of the of the analysis in the Dutch context that this is an anti-immigration vote. But what I try to raise people's attention to is that actually a lot of austerity me measures, scarcity of public services makes people often think in us versus them, i.e. people who have been here longer, people who are new, people who are immigrants, people who are of a different skin color, etc. But actually, then the question is, is immigration the root cause or is actually an economic policy or a failed economic policy the root cause? So I think that was what my article was about. And given the fact that you see other parties that are not explicitly anti-immigrant also gaining, gives you some indication that there's more going on than just anti-immigration sentiment. Yeah, that was very, very interesting in terms of that alternative, this the social and democratic um, 
Artie, that you referred to talking about the social contract been broken and actually increasing their vote. And in terms of that political science analysis, you know, you said that there's a small number of people who, um, you know, are anti the other, regardless of, of, of what the issue is. Do you have percentages on that in terms of like, are we talking? But I imagine as well, that's, you know, historically is, you know, has different percentages and, you know, it's the idea are humans selfish or not. And of course, you know, we've seen the great work by Rutger Bremen and others on, you know, the, the, the humanity that's, you know, to all of us is, is there and we are all human and compassionate. And of course, it's what happens in our lives that make us, um, you know, become hardened, as I said, as Nelson Mandela famously said, you know, no one is born with hate in their hearts. Um, that has to be nurtured, and I think that's very true. But from a political science kind of analysis point of view, what what are those kind of statistics that and percentages? So it's very difficult, right? Because people yeah. are not necessarily wanting to openly say, and also yeah. many people who are really uh, fiercely, let's say, uh, not just far right, but extreme right, they might even object to the system as such, and they might even not want to kind of ask a, you know, or, or answer a polling question, yeah. right? So like, yeah. it's, it's very difficult to get the actual percentage. But I think what was important in the Dutch election, and you see it in other elections as well, is that you had a big part of the center right, which moved to the far right. So people who are mm. very long voted, or even young people who are like, have voted for, let's say, a slightly more extreme option than they would otherwise do when you would look at their overall policy preferences, right? So they're not uh, necessarily um, uh, your usual, let's say, far-right uh, demographic, right? So yes. far-right demographics are usually men, lower educated, some of them at the, at the periphery of, uh, of, uh, of, uh, of society and some, and, and slightly older. That's the, that's the kind of overall, uh, demographic that you would say. But now you see actually, and you saw that already happening in, in French elections and the Italian elections, that there is actually a, a, you know, differences going on, uh, there. There's another group of people who get swayed. So the question I think is much more, not necessarily how, Sorry to say, Rory, but let not the, what's the size of the group that is actually really always holds very kind of, let's say, xenophobe or very, mm. very anti other preferences. Mm. But those people who get swayed to also take in the kind of package of being anti immigrant, but actually their, 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 their vote is more pushed by a general discontent with politics or general discontent about, you know, the public services that they feel that they're not getting, the tax money that is not being spent well, like a lot of these kind of considerations. And that's a much, much, much larger group. And usually what we see is that the far right is tradition. So contrary actually to the narrative that the far right actually gets quite a lot from the center right, not so say a disillusioned working class that moves all the way to the far right. Maybe the children of them, but we don't find so much evidence that there is this leaking you know, from the from the working class towards the far right. It's usually people who are already on the right that push themselves to a more far right option on average, right? It's it's I'm talking about averages here. Yeah, yeah. It's very interesting because the the I suppose in terms of the thinking of, you know, where this rise in anti immigrant sentiment is coming from, there would be, you know, certain assumptions that um, this would be from those who are most deprived of resources and most affected by, you know, lack of housing, lack of health care, you know, generational inequality that would be, um, you know, turning their support for anti-immigrant and far right. But you're saying that's not the case. It's actually more so. 
middle no, it's class, so those yeah. who are... Sorry, sorry to say, not to break the bubble of many people who are in the middle class, but actually I think it's quite often. So the way you can kind of think about it, and that's been my own research, like, so a lot of my research has been on the kind of scarcity of public services or reductions in public services or in general kind of austerity cuts, right, yeah. that are happening. And actually what you basically see is that, uh, and there's been some other evidence on basically the unemployed, on people of like poorer backgrounds, that what you actually see is that those are, that it's not necessarily in the kind of poorest environment, but actually maybe more in the middling elements where people are not so prone to want to pay taxes at all. So those are not necessarily people who are very happy about the state taking a big role. And then when they feel that their services are being cut, because they're already comfortable, uh, uncomfortable with paying what they would think are high taxes or they get even much more disgruntled. You actually have some evidence on the more kind of poorer side or people who have lost their job. In the Netherlands, at least, there's really nice evidence that actually people go to the left. So it really depends on what's happening. What I'm showing very often is like that, or my work on public services, because public services don't only affect the poorest in society. Mm. I mean, if you're richer and you need to use a public hospital and you, there's no private alternative, you're also going to be affected by some cut that's, you know, happening or NH in the Britain, you have a lot of discussion about NHS waiting lists, for example, that actually the people that are, that are, that are moving are those that are already slightly more centrist or even sometimes right leaning. So there's definitely also some evidence, as I said, I mean, does not, not to say that, that, but it's not necessarily the poorest of the poorest that we're talking about. And also, to be very honest, in many European countries, the poorest of the poorest are actually immigrants, right? Or people from immigrant background. They're actually the most kind of, um, uh, um, uh, let's say, uh, the most deprived or living in the most deprived areas or having uh, having weak concerns. So in the Netherlands, what it was very much, uh, you know, for example, you could think about a disgruntled farmer, small shop owner, uh, these kind of, uh, yeah, we would call it in French the petit bourgeois, right? Yes, so, yeah, yeah. Uh, that, uh, that actually... And we, that we, also, which, of course, was written about in terms of the Nazi regime and fascism yeah. would have been the, the bedrock of, of support. And yeah. um, Eric Fromm has written a incredible stuff about the whole psychology of that as well and um, the insecurities which is interesting because of course part of it then must be linked to, as you talked about there with, with what we would consider the, the middle class or you know um, working people on average incomes or maybe low incomes to medium incomes that over since the period of austerity and the financial crash of 2007 in particular of course was something that came up was the issue of housing between yes. in the Netherlands and you know is an issue in Ireland but you have those you know children of those generation can't afford to buy a home exactly. there's these aspirations that aren't possible to achieve and a deep insecurity you know pensions that were destroyed so it is actually you know there's an it's rather than thinking what you're right in terms of this binary of you know poor people who are deprived or you know being a you know feeling that they are deprived of services that also then there's amongst the middle class this huge insecuritization over the last um 15 years really now since the crash yeah and also that they actually i think and that was also very much the 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 kind of inspiration also to write the piece in the financial times is that then actually some of the parties who were responsible for implementing some of those cuts yes. or some of those are actually so the center right let's say but also to be fair in the third way politics some of the center left as well right at least in my own country the netherlands 
that then they are kind of like saying, well, now we have to kind of fight the far right by actually limiting immigration. But I'm like, okay, let's try to look also a little bit at data, like where did the shift, most recent shifts come from? Definitely immigration is a concern, but why are people worried about immigrants? I mean, if you are, if you have this fundamental problem with immigrants that we talked about, about this group that's difficult to quantify how many people those are, they've been voting for Gerd Wilders or for far-right party already for years. I mean, in the Netherlands, you had the breakthrough in 2001 of, of Pim Fortuyn. I don't know if people remember, but very flamboyant politician was killed, but he was the first one to put like the problems of of let's say bigger cities that had issues with integration of immigrants or had maybe deprived areas where a lot of immigrants were living. And he was pushing that like as a, as an, as an agenda point. And then builders kind of became the, let's say the child of that type of yeah. thinking and, and brought it into a kind of anti-Islam post 9-11, uh, framework. And there were also some, some, uh, some uh, terrorist attacks in the Netherlands and he rallied around that kind of anti-Islam sentiment. But that's kind of the core or hard far right electorate. I mean, those are not the ones that gave builders this this push, let's say, or this increase. Yes. So yeah. I think what's more interesting to see is like what moves people uh, that were more in traditional parties. And I think a lot of that has been just disillusioned with government. And especially uh, uh, the, the many governments in the Netherlands recently have done a lot of those things that you talked about. So, you know, increased kind of uh, own responsibility to pay up some stuff in, in the public service, healthcare that used to be more free, uh, uh, closing down of schools when they didn't meet a certain amount of pupils in rural areas. So people had to like, you know, bring their kids. Oftentimes they, because the public transport is not great, they're using the car, gas prices go up. So it's a lot of precarity, which is not poverty necessarily, right? Yeah, yeah. But it's just this kind of, yeah, sometimes people call this a squeeze middle class, or as you say, the aspirations that are not being met. And I think that 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 is, you know, like, if people see their tax bill kind of remaining the same, but the services for that having decreased, then they're kind of looking for answers. And the simple answer they're getting, oh, look at these immigrants, you know, like that's what a lot yeah, of the far right yeah. parties and even center right parties are saying, oh, look at these immigrants, we have to pay for them. So that's why we don't have the fiscal space to do that. But there will be alternatives. You could increase corporate taxation, you know, and talking to an Irish person yeah. uh, in the Netherlands, we have that too. There would be other policy solutions. Yeah. But because we're talking about it in terms of immigration only, oftentimes in the discussion and the policy solution is, well, we have to reduce immigration, but in countries like the Netherlands that are faced with aging, sluggish growth, et cetera, we would need immigrants for the long term, right? So actually we're also creating kind of policy solutions that are, that are maybe not, you know, that get us into trouble in X years from now. And we're not talking about some of the root issues that are there that we're, that inequality has risen, that people are much more precarious than they, than they used to be. And they're feeling that. And even if it's not always backed up yet in official data, it's at least what you said, the feeling that people have, that they, they feel that the state is not always there to protect them. And therefore they have to do it by themselves. So if everybody has to think about myself, I'm just going to put, you know, my, myself first. And then builders campaign slogan, which is put Dutch people on, on, first basically or dutch people first you know resonate in in that even with people who don't necessarily share his anti-islam rhetoric his you know his kind of anti-internationalization or exit rhetoric and they get then moved by these kind of messages because it, they think okay there's going to be more money spent on me yeah yeah it's very very interesting and and so important i'm thinking you know when you're saying it was 2001 when that kind of breakthrough happened and 
you know, we're at a point, as I said, where, where there hasn't really been a political expression of this far-right sentiment, but we obviously have local elections coming up um, along with European elections in June. Um, a national general election will be held, you know, most likely within, well, has to be held within the next year and a half or so. Um, and, you know, you know, it's difficult to say whether there will be a, a, an expression of that politically or not. Um, but there's no doubt that we're seeing, interestingly, for example, the, the centre-right Fianna Gael party who are in power along with, with Fianna Fáil, who will be centrist, centre-right as well, um, you know, shifting in just this week, um, cutting the um, supports that Ukrainian refugees will have, saying that they're no longer going to continue to give them support after 90 days, their support will be reduced. And also this week and last week, saying that any asylum seekers who turn up, who um, that basically we can't accommodate, will be just given a sleeping bag and told to go sleep on the streets. And we're seeing physically, the, you know, the rise in... in um, Asylum seekers, you know, being homeless, and but that, of course, is a as I, you know, it, it enrages me because I go, you know, we've got so many empty buildings in the country, empty offices, you know, even new offices built, huge vacancy rate, and um, and yet the government is telling a hundred asylum seekers, you know, you we have no room for you, and of course, what who will they become then? Is the you know, it's it's in the media. All the media headlines said Ireland, you know, says we've no more accommodation for asylum seekers. But that is the centre-right parties basically playing the politics of immigration. Yeah, and I think the, the 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 question of that also becomes some of my other work, which has been very much on party rhetoric. So what oftentimes what we find also what we did in a particular paper, we looked at actual cuts that were happening uh, based on a population threshold in, it, in Italy. And this was basically like we were just you know, like we were comparing municipalities that had five thousand and one inhabitants versus four thousand nine hundred ninety nine, and one was cut and the other was not. It's almost kind of like an experiment. And what yeah. you found is that also parties, especially on the far right, but also on the center right, started talking about public services more and linking those public services more to immigration. So I think partly what you have to understand for parties, they don't want to be responsible for some of the things that they know are economic policies that are not so popular. So they are, you know, if they have no interest having to explain why they did that, they might have reasons that you, you know, I might disagree with, but you could say, oh, we want to, you know, we do want to do fiscal tightening. We want to make sure that we don't burden future generations with debt. I mean, those are all arguments you could be made, but that's not yeah. the arguments they're making. It's easier than to say, I'm not going to talk about economic policy. I'm going to now talk about immigrants that are not doing what, quote unquote, we think they should be doing or they cost too much. And these things are, are this kind of rhetoric makes people also linking these things in their heads. So other work that we've done on like people's debt perceptions of debt, for example, that people then 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 start thinking about the fiscal burden of immigration. So like they have this idea or politicians give them this idea that it's a zero sum game, as you said, right? So yeah. like if if I can't spend on you, it's because I'm spending on these others, right? And that is a you know it's it's kind of an old tactic. I mean it's of of all ages, but you see that very much. But I just want to raise attention to the fact that if you're a strategic politician on the center right, but to be fair, or also sometimes on the on the center left, yeah. and you don't want to talk about some of the things you did that now have lasting negative repercussions for parts of the population, it's easier to start talking about 
culture and values and immigration and you know talk about this kind of different issues that might that might rally support for you rather than talking about basic kind of public service levels or hospitals or that we should increase taxes for some for for certain parts of the population or that inequality has risen i think there's quite a lot of work in political science that really shows in those in those instances parties in the center especially those on the center right often instead of taking responsibility for some of the policies they start talking about other things yeah of course to deflect attention away from yeah. you know their the impact of their policy decisions and as you yeah. say absolutely on the center left as well you know we had our own labor party um who were entered were in power during the austerity years um and implemented austerity and fed into um, they you talked about earlier that disillusionment and that sense of because there is that wider sense of you know parties aren't representing they would have been a party that represented different parts of you know social classes working class middle class in the past and um, their support has you know completely dropped now we do have you know new parties like the social democrats who have emerged who are uh, to a certain extent what you talked about in the Netherlands reflecting that desire for a new social contract we also have Sinn Féin as well who are the main opposition party now, um, who are broadly left, who are, you know, haven't been in power. Um, and, you know, there is, I suppose, that sense of there is an alternative at this moment in time, but then exactly. what will happen when they go into government exactly. Well, exactly. In, in the coming years? And I think it's really interesting to look at the Netherlands in terms of that um, sense of, because there's a wider question of democracy, people not feeling represented, which has been linked with the rise of corporations and, you know, the corporate power and, um, that sense of disconnection between government and and the public, in terms of if you were you know speaking to Ireland now and people in Ireland who are concerned um, about you know that rise in anti-immigrant sentiment, but also concerned about the quality of life for people here and wanting to you know provide and ensure we've we've a decent standard of living and quality for everyone who comes and everyone who's here, what advice would you give in terms of to avoid that rise in the in the anti-immigrant and and that I suppose what has happened in the Netherlands. Yeah, I think I mean one aspect, of course, and I mean it can be also um, uh, beneficial, but it is something also I say in the Netherlands. I mean the kind of corporate undercutting corporate tax rates like Ireland or the Netherlands are doing. Yeah, it might be a short-term game, but I think many people feel that that's unfair. So even if you think you can make money off that, but I I think in long-term societally, it's not. It's very difficult to explain to a small shop owner why he has to pay X number of tax and a big corporation doesn't necessarily need to do that. And yeah. you want to have growth, but you also have to, I would actually like to see some of the numbers of how much growth that brings to actually, um, in terms of innovation and et cetera, to an economy. So that would be one thing to really think about. It's also maybe not fair for other EU member states, to be really honest, yeah. that, you know, like yeah. where, where, uh, uh, so I think trying to think about that, but I think what is also really important is to just think a little bit about. So what I think what happened also a little bit to the, in, in the Netherlands is that, um, people see and also, you know, not to, you know, I'm just want to, Full disclosure, I'm not a politician and I, I have a lot of respect for people trying to work on the public good and trying to probably do it with very good intentions, but that the outcomes oftentimes might not be uh, uh, what's needed is that we have bureaucratized a lot of these elements. So what we've had in the Netherlands, we had a big scandal involving our tax agency that was using racial profiling uh, because they were using algorithms to try to find fraud and taxes. Yeah. And of course, yeah. algorithms have biases within yeah. that. So that might seem efficient, 
as a thing to do, right? Mm. But ultimately it doesn't because it, you know, you sometimes need also a human face. You people also would like to see someone helping them. So also thinking about the interactions that people have with bureaucracy. And then the other thing I, I think that we really have to start. So we're already starting to think about kind of how we define growth, but we also really have to start defining efficiency in a different way. It was this very much this new public management, you know, mm. like of the eighties, like yeah. a government should act like a corporation and should be, you know, efficient. I mean, I'm not a public administration scholar, so maybe I'm not doing it justice, but that was a kind of the kind yeah, of reasoning. Yeah. And I think the idea is like in my work, if what we show is that a decree, a really a reduction in public services of access to public services that really just kind of cut the, the amount of garbage collection, it cuts the access to a hospital, it cuts the number of pub, of trains that are going from a rural place to the to the uh, to the uh, to the city. It's 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 reducing the number of social housing. It might you know seem like a cost cutting enterprise now, but if it in the long term fuels the far right and pits groups in society against each other, it's not at all efficient, right? It has a huge cost in the end because yeah. you get, you basically, what we also know is that the more far right, I mean, from a lot of studies, the more far right or populist type of parties are in government, the worse often outcomes are in terms of growth, in terms of innovation, in terms of, you know, uh, uh, ask uh, many Argentinians about that, right? So it, yeah. I think the, the issue is that like we're thinking very short term and we're not thinking about the long term and we're not thinking about, we're often thinking about efficient to kind of the winners in society and we're not really thinking about what if this policy had an adverse effect that we don't know yet. And then what do we do to compensate those people? And then if people, you know, go back to government and say, for example, oh, you know, this has not worked out well to me in the Netherlands, this scandal. So people who were uh, affected by the scandal, they're sometimes still waiting for compensation. And then what you basically think is that what, you know, like people then say things on TV, like this government is not for me. It doesn't care about people like me. Yeah. And I think yeah. there is we need to start really thinking about what government is for and that that it can't be just, uh, uh, you know, the people can't just be only a number. They're, they're, they're citizens of a community. And with that, there's they have responsibilities, but also the state has responsibilities. And I think in that way, we need to think much more. And to be really honest, I mean, one can have a political ideology for that, but, you know, this would, this would apply for the left and the right. I mean, you have to start thinking about how, uh, how people perceive the state in their lives. And I think what you see in many countries is that the state is retreating, retreating, retreating because of cost cutting, but also because of quote unquote efficiency concerns. And that might be efficient to have e-government. It might be efficient to do certain things. But sometimes it might be a short-term gain for a very long-term loss, if that makes sense. Absolutely. So I think we, we really need to think about like how, how we, you know, how we make that, that step. So I think in some ways what I said is don't think only in terms of efficiency. Yeah. Think about efficiency for whom and also think about this, that government is also a human connection and people deeply care about who governs them and what they do and who they see in a, in a, in an office, in a government office and that they feel heard and understood by, by government agencies. And I think we need to, we need to balance that. And it's gone very much into kind of efficiency in terms of processes and, and fraud and a lot of these elements. And I think we, we really need to rethink how we, how we deal with, you know, with, with kind of public governments in general. 
I think that's very interesting because it's actually directly a piece of research research that I'm involved with at a European um, level, Horizon 2020 project called Involve, which is looking specifically at public services and democracy and its link to trust. Um, and it's a participatory approach, co-production approach with marginalised groups. And of course, the, the big question that we're asking is, you know, how the involvement of uh, people who are, you know, service users, uh, citizens, marginalized groups, for example, lone parents in policy decisions and in public services. And for example, there was a number of examples given that, you know, public services were introduced. There was um, around lone parents and there was additional childcare brought in to support them um, for after school. But uh, there was a very low take up. And the government were saying, well, why was there such a low take up? And it was because the government had given no transport from the school to the after school, because in Ireland, they're not right beside each other. And the the lone parents were like, well, who's going to pick up our children? Like talk about completely disconnected service from reality. Um, And so I think that's a really important thing that the idea of participation of, of a human service, of a human public service and not just a bureaucracy. But last question to you, the, the hope bit and the, the, in, the interesting, tell me a little bit about that uh, party, the Netherlands party that you said, this new party that emerged and how did they do that and sort of what was their kind of messages that won support? So I think that the, that the, that I think what we, what you can also see is that like parties in, in, in different countries are trying to really articulate the idea that, uh, the, that rule of law is under pressure, that part of like, uh, the story of like why public services are, are not uh, working for people or people don't see, feel that they're hurt is that basically that social contract is being broken. You also saw that actually very strong in the US context. Remember, uh, in Black Lives Matter, it was all, mm-hmm. that was a kind of a racial component, but you see it in yeah. many different, uh, in many different contexts. So this was a party actually of the center right. So it was not a party on the, on the, on the, on the center left and trying to kind of, uh, uh, vocalize, uh, these kind of sentiments. And it was actually of a, a party member who had uncovered a lot of this scandal together with a left-wing party. So it was actually also cooperative amongst uh, amongst uh, uh, different parties and trying to give a different uh, a different aspect. I mean, there's other parts that probably uh, uh, of the party program that uh, that uh, if there are left-wing listeners, one would be less uh, uh, um, uh, kind of enthusiastic about, yeah. but it was very much about uh, trying to uh, create a state that works for its citizens and not mm. like... Uh, the idea that like it's a very removed uh, area. But I think that the other aspect, which is maybe also what you saw a little bit, it's died down a little bit, but what you saw in Spain coming up after the uh, cuts there, uh, parties like Podemos, for example, but also in uh, in, uh, in in other countries. I mean, uh, you had here uh, Movimento Cinque Stelle in Italy, which is yes. difficult left and right kind of through each other and also had quite interesting uh, uh, policy positions. But a lot of it was about participatory Part, more participatory uh, 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 government. I think the the issue with those things is, and it will be also interesting to hear for you. But it's basically like, how do you scale that, right? So at the local level, it can work really well. Mm. But like, if you have to roll something out at the national level and you increase a distance again, like, how do you do that, right? So I think that these kind of participatory forms of government, as you were talking about, and especially to deal with the issue of what I also said that you might have unintended co- consequences of a policy, as you were describing 
talking about, yeah. hey, we just forgot that like people need to get like their kids from school to this uh, to this uh, after school care. And we just didn't see that part of the puzzle. And I think that's really important to try to also organize at a, at a, at a kind of local level and to get a lot of maybe also more autonomy at the at the at the at the, at the local level as well. So you see yeah. some of these initiatives. I don't think it's an overall ideology or something, but it, it, you do see in, in different kinds of approaches. So I think it often links to to these more participatory aspects and getting the government to work uh, 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 for its citizens and trying to to do that in the most practical way possible. Yeah. I think it's very interesting because you can take in the concept of, you know, efficiency, which you said there, which is, you know, part of the problem that, you know, public services with new public management. And I would, you know, I've done a lot of research as well and critique around neoliberalism in terms of this marketization. And as you said, you know, public services thinking like corporations and being like a business. But in a way, it's they have, you know, internalized the logic of everything has to be about what is the most economically efficient rather than. For example, the whole notions of well-being, the notions of, as you said, their participation, that takes time. It takes resources. Belonging. Belonging, exactly. That that actually, when I, I particularly, you know, I see some hope from the younger generations, you know, the, the refusal to the idea of, you know, well, we live, uh, we live to work, we don't work to live. And this, you know, uh, questioning and rejection of this idea that everything is about economic efficiency and, and there is something about, I think, us going, well, hang on a minute, what are the outcomes we want? And if it is well-being, well, that means it takes more time. And that means the public service isn't about, you know, how quickly have you dealt with 100 cases, but actually, have the people been dealt with? Have they been supported? And exactly. and that requires a whole different way of thinking about what drives our economies as well. It's not just exactly. GDP, it's... It's other factors. Exactly. You saw that also some Dutch local governments where they have called this kind of projects vitamin A, and the A stands for attention. Yeah. So the idea that you actually can help prevent or help them just by spending some more time with Mm. people who are on the margins of society, but also people who are struggling and really trying to do that. But I think oftentimes what it is, is that, that we're thinking about like one big brush for a lot of people who have very particular problems and I think that's also what we need to kind of think about. And that's also, of course, in a lot of demands, as, as you said, about younger people, is that there are many different aspects that really matter. And I think that public services, where we often forget, it's not just a resource that we provide for people, but it's a part of like, it says something about who belongs to a society, right? Like it's mm, yeah. what we often say kind of in a kind of political economy, like you can't really exclude people from a public service. It's very difficult, right? If you yeah. are a resident somewhere, you can have, as long as you're a resident, which of course not everybody is, but like that you have access to those kind of public services, right? So then then you are dealing with a very heterogeneous environment and you need to make sure that people know what's going on. And a lot of it will also be prevention, not necessarily. And I think what happened really in the Netherlands, and what's very clear from this scandal that uh, involved our tax agency, that they were so concerned about fraud. They were so concerned about people misusing the service that that led, you know, like that they focused only on that instead of thinking, hey, you know, maybe there, you know, we should make it less difficult for people to apply for certain funds. Maybe we should yes. prevent certain things, right? Rather than, than like being reactive. But that in that in, you know, that really involves us thinking that government is important, that public service delivery is important, that it's, it's part of being a citizen and that also, you know, shoulders that can carry more are also paying their fair share of, uh, of those, uh, of that per, of that service delivery. And ultimately, 
that's, I think, only the way in which we can have kind of a social contract that works and have social cohesion where people feel that they belong to a bigger whole. And then it's not about, you know, what we started the conversation with about us versus them or pitting yeah. people against each other, but actually realizing that a lot of people are going through the same difficult times and they just need help. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that is so true. And it is, um, it's really, it's really interesting. And, and thank you for taking the time because it does offer ways of thinking through, you know, how can we, I said, you know, build a, a positive future rather than it just been consumed by fear and, and, uh, which it really, it is, you know, fear, sense of insecurity, but you know, exactly. where is the, where is the way we can build, um, solidarity, you know, social cohesion, as you say, this concept of a social contract and public services are at the heart of that, but at the type of public services, how they're delivered yes. really matters, which, which exactly. is your point, you know? No, and I think the last thing I want to say about that, even if you wanted to stick, it's not my language, but even if you wanted to stick in the company's language, right? Companies yeah. are not only about cutting costs. Companies are also about investing, about long term, yeah. like, and that is not what we took out of the kind of toolbox of yeah. uh, of company thinking, right? Like, so, so even if you want, even if you're, you know, someone who's more inclined to think in that kind of company analogy, we did only very small part of what of what a successful company would do. So it's even there, you know, like that kind of doesn't serve well. And I think it's just that hopefully we realize that like social cohesion just doesn't develop. Yeah. It needs active attention, right? It really needs deep, deep investment. And uh, that is money, but it's also time and a human touch and people who really care. Yeah, yeah. Well, listen, Catherine, thanks so much for uh, giving us your time. And um, it was really, really interesting. And I have to really encourage people to go look at your article in the Financial Times. It was very, very interesting. Um, and your work. And perhaps uh, you come back on again and we can have a chat again. It would be great. Thank you so much. Rory. I really enjoyed it. And of course. Thank you, Catherine. Um, and to our listeners, thank you so much, everyone, for uh, continuing to share around the podcast, for listening in. Um, we are an independent podcast produced by Tony Groves of Tortoiseshack Media. If you can, go over to patreon.com forward slash Tortoiseshack. Sign up for whatever you can each month. Help us keep this show on the road. Thank you so much. And, uh, yep, we will talk to you all very soon. <laughs>